Welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. Well, I think I said Happy New Year in the last podcast, but that was technically the last day of 2023 when that came out. Today is actually my first podcast of 2024, and I want to do what everybody does in January and make a bunch of promises I probably won't keep. (laughs) Seriously, though, I looked back at 2023 and I started a lot of things that I need to finish. So what we're going to find this year, at least at the beginning of this podcast, is I'm going to roll back and look again at Unchained Heroes, which I released kind of mostly. (laughs) And I am going to finish that up first. I think because that game is closer to completion, it makes sense for me to do that before I kind of start to put the polish on Unchained proper, as it would be the one that's, you know, a little bit more the one I've been playing. (laughs) So Unchained Heroes, if you don't know, if you're new to the podcast, is effectively my take on sword and sorcery pulp. It's a stripped back version of my Unchained game, which has its roots in Chainmail. I would say that Unchained Heroes is closer to Chainmail than it is to D&D in the sense that I don't think I'm using much, if anything, from Dungeons & Dragons in it, except for the fact that Chainmail was a massive influence. One place where I've had a couple of changes and uh, thoughts was the skill system. I like what I created there. But I also wonder if having a skill system where we need to roll on a chart might take away from the, I'm air quoting here, the role play aspect. I, I like the combat being chart heavy because I like the weapons versus armor and I'm going to keep that for sure. I like the crunch of that. But I wonder during the kind of role play part of the game when you're not digging into the combat, when we're just trying to overcome tasks, if I want to be referencing charts So I had messed around a little bit with the Arnesonian dice, which we see in Holmes and Clark and got their roots, I believe now I'm finding from Hobbes. That that could be true. Maybe not. I'm going to dig into it a little deeper before I end up putting a variation of that into my game. I will say that the variation in Holmes and Clark, they have a special rule about rolling doubles and you have to use the doubles. In practice myself, I found that you roll doubles way too much and that wasn't satisfactory for me. But I do like the idea of effectively a dice pool, but instead of being, you just use all the dice, you take the top two, or whichever, or I guess whichever two you want. I might do something that inspired by Dogs in the Vineyard, where I do the dice pool and then you kind of challenge the other dice. And instead of taking two and comparing the high number, maybe it's you take your dice and you can counter any dice of the challenge you know, equal or lower than the ones you rolled. And then any dice that remain give you kind of a level of success. I think that's kind of where I want to be with this. But again, that might be a little too complicated. I got it bouncing around my head. So I'll talk more about that as the year goes on. But that's kind of where I'm at. I'm going to finish that first. My goal is first quarter to release that as an actual product. It will be put up, probably pay as you want, pay what you want or whatever you want to call it. At first, I may ask for a couple bucks later on because I'm going to try to get some proper art for it. But I want to get it up as a working product first. So that's where that's going to be. Second, I will jump back into Unchained and hopefully I will finish it by the end of the year. I I really need to do the writing part of it because I've done the mechanics part. And sometimes that can be the most complicated part. You sit there and, you know, I talk a lot about how I love that BX can teach you how to play D&D. And it's so clear with the examples of play and stuff. 
and I may have set myself too high a standard <laughs> because VX is so good at that that I don't think that I could ever write a game that's going to explain. I, I, maybe I could. So I think I'm going to just step away and not even bother. I'm going to treat the game as if this is should not be your first RPG. That's probably the, the stance I'm going to take. I think as long as I'm clear about that, that should be fine. Like clear, clear on the tin as it would be. And that actually brings me to another kind of brief subject I'm going to talk about very briefly because I kind of want to dip into a couple things, get some calls and see where we go with it. But I often hear people say certain games are better for new players. And generally when they say that, they're talking about games that have just a single mechanic. They're like, oh, new players, you know, they, they can't learn a new game unless it's the most basic thing ever. And see, I'm being sarcastic there because clearly I don't think that. So I would love to have conversation about that. I'm curious and maybe it's because of where I stand. I mean, I played D&D when I was a kid with nobody teaching me. I wasn't one of these people that had a group. I mean, we learned from the box set from BX. And we played AD&D, which is, you know, when you come from BX, you understand AD&D. But I think if I handed somebody who had never played RPGs before the, you know, the three AD&D core rule books, they would be just as confused as if I handed them OD&D. <laughs> maybe not just, but close. Because that game also kind of expects that you understand, at least on some level, how to play it. I think role-playing is enough in the culture. BJ's talked about that over on the Arcane Alienist, that I think people do understand it enough that I don't have to get so deeply into it. But, you know, we'll see where I go there. But it, I went sideways again. But what I want to know from people is, why do you think that, if you think that, uh, somebody learning a game needs to have the most basic game ever? And one thing I'm just going to say here, kind of to to you know bait the the hook as it would be, is I've been getting more and more into board games lately, and uh, hex and chit kind of war games, and most of them are not that simple. Like I just sat down and played Horrified, which is actually a very basic game. It's for new people, really. It's really for new people, and while it's not complicated, it's definitely you refer back to the rules. Step by step, as you walk through the process, you draw a card here, you can move this, there's rules about that. It's not the simplest game in the world. Not everything's exactly the same. And some of it was a little unclear until we started playing it. And that's made for new people. So should the game only have one mechanic, even if it's a board game? I mean, I'm curious why people think RPGs need to fall into that category. So let me know. That went on longer than I wanted to, because I want this one to be relatively short because I have to edit it and I'm kind of behind the, the behind the gun. Is that we behind the ball? Anyways, um, usually I record these things on Friday. It is Saturday and I have a bunch of other stuff to do. So I'm going to leave you there with a couple of questions. Let me know what you think. I do. I say I'm going to leave you because I have some calls. So the first call here is going to be from Jason. There's two of them actually, but I'll probably play them one at a time, depending on, as I probably have stated before, I don't usually listen. I almost never listen to the calls first. So if they're connected, I'll play them both. Otherwise, I'll play one, and you'll hear me again in a second. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Just calling in about the end of the year show that you did. I really enjoyed it. You, you mentioned the Ermus, I guess, did the challenge of wanting to know if anybody has run just a straight mega dungeon where the characters go down, you know, 12 levels deep, and they go up a level, you know, where the characters are leveling up as they go, and, and that's kind of all they're doing. But... And there's nothing wrong with that if somebody wants to do it. I'd be interested, too, to hear somebody's experience that that's all the party did. But, you know, that kind of goes against one of the core tenets of at least Gygaxian and TSR era D&D, at least prior to second edition, 
the idea, well, second edition had this to some degree as well, the, the idea of tiers of play and the idea that, yeah, what you do as characters, you know, first to third level or first to fifth level is different than what you do when you're mid-tier characters, right? A 10th level fighter doesn't have the same job and responsibility a first level fighter has. You know, you're going to have community responsibilities. You're going to be fighting different levels of threats. It's not that you're just fighting tougher things in the monster or tougher monsters in the dungeon and going deeper in the dungeon, but you've got domain play that's going to come in when you get to higher levels, right? And and you've got responsibilities. And, you know, when when you're these big tough fighters, you're going to get tapped to do things by the local lords and kings and whatnot. And so there's going to be those other aspects of play that if, and, and sure, you can do faction play and all that in the dungeon. That's built into a lot of these old dungeons. But really, the idea that your 6th, 7th, 8th level characters, all they do is go down in the dungeon, I'm not saying that can't happen, but that's not, you're kind of going against the design goals of the game by even doing that to some degree. So I, I also would be curious if anybody's just done that strict, you know, concentrate just on the dungeon with that, because I know, like when we were playing, Cody Maza used to run Baramaze using um, Delving Deeper on the Audio Dungeon Discord. It was a few years ago, and yeah, Baramaze, like going in the maze, was the main thing. But there was also faction play in the town. There were fights with other gangs, other groups in the town. There were missions away from the barrow. The barrows would freeze. So you'd have a campaign season where you go in the barrows and then you have other season where you did other things, you, you know? And so it wasn't just every session going into the barrow maze. There, there was all these things outside of that too. And, you know, building headquarters and how are we designing the headquarters? And, you, you know, a lot of, some of the players put a lot of time and effort into that and doing those things. So, yeah, I, I think if, if all it is is going to the dungeon, it would be kind of get old. Um, I don't know. So anyway, I, I rambled on here for three minutes. I'm going to let you go, but I'm looking forward to see what you do in the new year. Take care. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And what's funny about it is, I mean, looking at OD and D, I mean, it certainly says, in fact, OD and D by the three little brown books, which is funny. Again, every time I read these books, I learn something new. You don't get automatic followers and stuff at name level unless you're a cleric. They're the only ones that get that. Isn't that funny? Fighters can become, they become barons and they can have land, but they don't get those followers and stuff, right? So it's actually interesting. Clerics are the only ones that get that. Anyways, uh, I uh, that's a side note. I agree. I think that that's where people go, but I want, and that was kind of my point, is that you start playing a mega dungeon and then you get to a higher level and all of a sudden the, the realm is calling, right? But Gygax does talk about having a dungeon where, on the 12th level, it's full of dragons and there's, you know, giants bowling on level 10. So who's going to level 10 of the dungeon if not level 10 and 12 characters? Maybe they go there once in a while <laughs> and maybe they do other stuff other times. So I don't know. I mean, I think it could be interesting to just do that. And then I wonder, too, as you were talking about it, I was thinking to myself, you know, you could do a campaign where and this would be probably appropriate for something like Barrow Maze. And again, I have Barrow Maze. Honestly, it looked too repetitious for me to ever run it, but I, I like some of the ideas in it. I don't think Barrow Maze goes to 13th, 14th level. I mean, it doesn't really have levels that spread out. But what would be interesting about something like Barrow Maze, it doesn't go super high level, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you could do the things you're saying, right? You have your player characters, 
and they're going in the barrows and they're broke and they're first level. And then once they start getting some treasure and stuff, they start hiring henchmen and then they level up. And once they reach fourth, fifth, sixth level, they could become almost like the quest giver in the town, right? Your, your, your player could play five or six of the henchmen that, that, that work for them and they could have their own little factions that dive into the maze. You could almost play one-on-one -on -one with players, but each player is running a handful of adventurers that are, that are basically the henchmen and the low-level people that they brought up under them. And that could be the factions you create. So again, you're still just diving into the dungeon for the most part, but you are including that other part on top. So I think there's lots of ways to do it, but let me know if I'm wrong about Barrow Maze. Maybe it does go 12th level and you wouldn't be able to do that. But I'm just wondering who dives into these super deep dungeons. Maybe, you know, somebody does. <laughs> I just think for my players and my experience playing, which, you know, again, is just limited to my own life, is that generally speaking, once they reach a certain level, they stop going into the dungeons for the most part because the stuff on the surface is more interesting to them. And we get them going to dungeons, but they don't go into dungeons the same, with the same intent, right? They're not going in, stealing treasure, leaving, going in, stealing treasure, leaving. They're going in for something. Like my party recently delved the dungeon because they were trying to stop uh, a cult. So they were trying to destroy this evil altar. But that's why they went in there. They didn't run around. I mean, they did get treasure because they had to, you know, they got encounters and they fought things and took their money. But that wasn't why they delved in. Now, they actually are a little bit, <laughs> going to be a little bit short on cash. So maybe they will jump back in the dungeon and we'll see. Uh, you know, to be fair, I haven't played a lot of really high level stuff except in 5th edition. And we really didn't dungeon crawl in that. And back when we were kids and we didn't dungeon crawl at high levels when we were kids. We traveled the world. We were really into things like Star Trek and like finding new, you know, new civilizations as it would be. So we were always on the move looking for new places. And that was a lot of what our, uh, what our adventures were. We weren't really going into dungeons very much. So not at higher levels anyways. So very cool. Thanks, Jason. So I, I jumped in, as I said, because his other call is called Another Thin Man Drinking Game. And I'm assuming that's not related to this first call, but I guess we're going to find out in a second. One last thought. You mentioned the drinking game that you run. And I did a little drinking game myself for New Year's Eve, I watched Another Thin Man because that's the Thin Man movie. You know, these are the movies from the early, the first two movies are in the 30s. I forget when the others, I think the others might be from the 40s, but with William Powell and Myrna Loy. But anyway, I watched Another Thin Man because that takes starts on New Year's Eve. And I decided to try to match William Powell drink for drink. Well, and I didn't do big drinks by any means. I basically did a, sh a shot whenever he drank. But, you know, I made it through the movie, so I'm very proud of myself for that. And I was feeling pretty good. I'm like, well, let's go back and watch the original Thin Man. And we weren't, you know, a couple minutes into the movie and, and all those drinks from that, the, the first movie we watched hit me hard. And, yeah, that, that was it. I was down for the count. But um, so I, I don't know if that's a, a drinking game I'd recommend to people. But if, if you want a, a challenge, that's maybe one to think about. <laughs> That sounds pretty fun, actually. I watched uh, Thin Man and Another Thin Man, I think last year when you were, I believe it was you, yeah, that had to have been, you were talking about noir films, your, my, my film source, in November, I think, not this past November, but the one before, and I started down that that uh, that route of uh, noir films, and I, and I found, you know, in films from that era, and I found those, and those are interesting because they're almost comedies, right? I mean, they, they're I think they're meant to be funny, and they were funny. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I actually enjoyed, I only watched the first two, right? Because then after that, they have a, a child. So maybe the child's in the second one, but there was one with the child. And I think I started watching that one and then kind of fell off. 
But anyways, that's... <laughs> and, uh, you know, and of course, now I'm locking in on my podcast by saying it, but there was rumors that Jason and several other of the Anchor Universe people are going to be at a con that I'll be at this year. So maybe uh, I'll bring the drinking game to that and you'll see how much of a lightweight I am because I'm definitely not uh, anywhere near a drinker. So <laughs> it's 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 kind of funny and I probably shouldn't be doing it, especially on the first night of the con. But hell, you know what? We're there to have fun. Speaking of having fun, that's my weird segue to I have a... Uh, <laughs> A message from Anthony Runeslinger over at Casting Shadows, and it says Happy New Year, and we're going to, oh, it says on Raw, so this should be interesting. Let's listen to see what Anthony has to say. Hey, Daniel. It's Anthony calling from the Casting Shadows podcast, South Korea, the future, and a walk with my dogs. I apologize for any background noise, so I'll keep this short. I'm listening to... Your New Year's Eve episode, and I just finished the Raw section. I thought that Jason brought up some important points about observations about playing Raw or Roar, and so did you. And you pointed out that there are gray areas, and so I thought I would add to the grayness in that, in my experience, there are definitely those attitudes and some more. Um, I find, especially with interactions online, like, you know, less so in person, I guess that's related to the social dynamic of the in-person group, but I find that someone, for whatever reason, will have a problem with a rule. Either it's not understood, or it is a rule that they don't like or don't want to use, they've got some reaction to it, you know, ranging from incomprehension to dislike. And they go online and they say, this rule is stupid, I don't understand this rule or whatever. I'm going to do something different. And they explain something different that they're going to try or they give up, said, I wanted to try this game, but I just can't. That kind of thing, this, this area. And if you are a regular player of that game and you didn't have that negative reaction to the rule, then, you know, where they have gone astray or the, the part that they have failed to connect with or the fact that it's just a, a preference reaction it is kind of obvious to you, like this kind of situation. And you can easily point out to them how the rule works or what the rule is supposed to do or why that rule fits into this particular game. You know, you can show them a way where they can use the rule. And this is either greeted with thanks, or the person who points it out is treated as some kind of authoritarian, some kind of jackbooted, you know, one true way supporter kind of thing. And... Often I find uh, that's as right as it is wrong, right? There are people who are authoritarian, unkind, unsympathetic, you know, uncharitable listeners who swoop in and say, oh, you're wrong and I shall deliver wisdom from on high. But that does mean that still 
that other large amount of the time, people are just trying to help you find that smoothness or to be able to connect with the game so that you don't have these kinds of struggles or questions. And uh, it's kind of hard to see them from the outside. And then the second point that I've observed kind of connects to why I think there's this such a strong divide by playing with a nod to the rules, like rulings over rules. Yeah, we're playing this game. I'm going to use a, a lot of the rules, but I'm going to make a lot of stuff up all the way over to I'm going to do my very best to use all the rules as they were intended. And somewhere in there is the point where you recognize that the intention for the rule maybe didn't actually manifest in the text. You know, the, the person who wrote it did their best to communicate an idea, but maybe failed. You know, there's a lot of gray area, as, as you say. But why do we care so much? Why do we care so much about how the game gets played? And I find it's kind of interesting that this, again, splits along the perception of role-playing as an experience or as a storytelling exercise. This is a pretty big divide. And for all of its immensity, there are a lot of players who haven't come to the realization that they're on one side of it or the other. And that their their instincts are going to pull them in a specific direction, right? Towards a certain kind of play. And when they're in a game that better supports the opposite kind of play, they're going to experience some friction, right? So when we have a strong, you know, passionate drive for it's got to be rulings over rules, what I'm hearing is the person in the game master's seat is demanding control over how the story flows generally speaking. It's not that they are resistant to following someone else's written rule. It's that if they do that, then the mechanism has control over outcomes instead of them. They want to be able to determine when things happen, how things happen. And so there are rulings made. There are decisions made. There's fiat exercised and that sort of thing. Whereas, on the other end of the spectrum, most of the, let's say, responsibility for outcomes is placed on the shoulders of the mechanisms of play. And if we find that there aren't mechanisms there to support what we might need in that moment, then we start hearing it's not a very good game, it's not well designed, it's not realistic. We hear a whole bunch of complaints about that because I, you know, the, the game master was pushed into the uncomfortable position of having to make a ruling, having to make a decision about an outcome, and that's not a particular responsibility that they want to have. So I, I find that kind of interesting as well, and that, that kind of underlying tension adds passion to this particular debate, this heated debate that really shouldn't matter any more than someone liking one kind of ice cream over another. And yet somehow it does. Anyway, really enjoying the show. Have a great new year. Take care. 
Thanks, Anthony. You make some really good points there, as always. Always well thought. I feel like when I listen to one of Anthony's calls, and then I listen to a call that I make into a show, I think, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> but anyways, that was really great. And and right, there's so much to this. And I think that that's certainly one angle. Uh, I don't know that I agree with, I know you were kind of taking the extreme, that people that like rulings want to be in control of the situation. At least not that they want to be in control. I think that they just like, being one of those people, me and myself, I think I just like a different kind of game. I like a game where the table is in control. I I, I don't... Uh, but I also love a game where, where things are random. So I guess I'm somewhere in the middle. Maybe that's why when I sit here, I can see both sides. So the extreme ends uh, poke at me, if you will. <laughs> Maybe if I was so settled into one side or the other, I would just be like, well, they're crazy over there, so I'm just going to ignore them. But I like playing games that you follow, you know, I buy the rules as close as possible. But I also like games that have space to grow and to be interpreted because I think that's the joy of the role-playing game. I think when I'm playing a board game or I'm playing poker, I want to follow those rules exactly. That's a different kind of game. I think when I'm playing a role-playing game, I want to keep the rules a little bit loose. Now, sometimes it's a bummer, right? Because I will be playing in the game as a player and I will notice that the game master is not using some of the awesome rules in the game that I like, and I've come to experience this game. So here I am, let's say at a convention, and I'm like, oh, cool, I want to try to learn how to play X game. And then I show up at the table, and they hand wave, they don't play the rules, they don't do this, because they think maybe it's easier, going back to my <laughs> opening thing I talked about, for new players, whatever it is. And because of that, you don't really get a sense of what the game is like. And that can also be an issue. So it's just funny. I mean, I think that those of us who talk about RPGs are the ones that are passionate. So I think that's what we're seeing here is that if you are on social media or you're making a podcast or a YouTube video or whatever about these things, then clearly you have an opinion because you wouldn't be making them otherwise. I think the things I don't really like going back to kind of my original somewhat rant was when I see things where... People are deliberately attacking somebody who, and again, you you, you basically pointed out these people uh, you know, that this type of person exists that are doing something. And, and when I say that, I, I, here's the thing. So I'm going to give an example that I just recently saw on Twitter and I didn't get involved in it. And it was one of those things where somebody that I follow retweeted somebody they follow who had retweeted somebody else. So it was like a pretty deep down um, thing. And the tweet essentially said, I wanted to play in a game, so I joined this group of players. They were the actor type and loved critical role. And, you know, and there might have been some kind of, you know, emo, you know, throw up emoji or something. I can't remember. When I got to the table, they didn't understand the rules properly. So I decided to sit there and break every encounter the DM threw at us because I knew the rules and could pull up pages. And every time they tried to say something, I would point out a rule specifically and make them have to do it the way I said. In the end, everybody was practically in tears because they couldn't do the thing that they love to do because, ha, 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 I knew the rules better. Those people are weak. And that is the type of person I'm talking about. That person that would join a group that they are not enjoying. And just like you're saying, they get there and they, 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 it's rubbing against them the wrong way. But then they are choosing instead of saying, hey, this is something different. Let me give it a shot. They're choosing to sabotage from within the group, 
Now, me personally, as the GM, first of all, when I see a story like that, I think my first gut reaction is that person's a total jerk and they would have been thrown off my table. But then my second reaction is that's probably just some bully who didn't really do this and they're just out there being a troll. And that's why when I see those things, I don't reply to them because I do understand that a lot of times this is just people in their weird power fantasies about how they told off this person when they really didn't. And it's cowardly. It's a bully. And, you know, we don't need it. We don't need it in in the general hobby. And sadly, because I tend to play older games, I am sometimes put into that category. People are like, oh, you know, here, Google this and with Daniel's name, I'll come up OSR or whatever. And then you see all these people that are just the exact opposite of who I am. I want inclusion. I want diversity. I want people to play the way they want. I want people to love the game and try different things. But if you want to play rules as written, that's awesome. Go for it. I will tell you that I will play in a game that's rules as written 100%. I don't have an issue with that. But that's basically where we're at here. And and I think it's interesting. I I think it's an interesting social and psychological (laughs) thing to, to think about how people play and why This is why I named my episode The Cult of Raw. Not that playing Raw is bad, not that you shouldn't want to. And as Jason pointed out, and he knows, and I talked about, I like to play the game with as many rules as possible. I don't just randomly make things up, and I definitely don't make rulings so that I can control the situation. That, because I have some story to tell, that is 100% false in my case. So... I rub against that a little bit, saying that's not true for me, but I don't think you were saying everybody. I think you were making a a kind of the far extreme generalization. And yeah, I think that people that like to control the narrative often uh, will use the rules. They become people that are very obsessed with the rules and, and dig in so that they know they have control. You memorize the rules. You know how this works so that when somebody tries to do something, you can counter them. Like, sure, you can counter them with, I want to make a ruling, but that's quickly how you lose a table if they don't agree with you. So that was my long response to your long call-in, which I very much appreciated. Thank you so much for calling in. I will put uh, Anthony's information in the description as well as Jason's. I have one more call from Evil Jeff from the Minions and Musings podcast. Daniel, Evil Jeff, just listened to your uh, Dungeon 23 and uh, all the Great information you put out there. Uh, I really appreciate your viewpoint and kind of retrospective on what you found as you went through the whole process. I think it was also uh, really telling uh, right there towards the end where you were talking about, you know, you have a greater appreciation for the rules and how things are uh, constructed. Um, And I think that goes a lot for all the games that we play. You know, as a player, we might not understand the rules in there, but as a GM, when you start creating adventures and, and delving into it on a consistent basis, you really do see more of how things are going and why they are the way they are. So thanks for that podcast. Look forward to hearing more from you later. All right. Thanks, Evil Jeff. That's, you know, it's very true. Again, this comes into this idea that, again, talking about rules again, what do we need to know, right? And I know that there is the the joke. I'm going to call it a joke because that's how I always took it uh, in the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide where it basically says that 
players aren't supposed to read this, and if they do, whatever, you know, kill their character, whatever it says. And of course, some people take that as, oh, you're not supposed to, but I, you know, <laughs> I always took that as a joke because I guess maybe it's because when we were playing AD&D, everyone I played with both DM'd and played. We didn't have people that were just players, so that just would have been a silly thing. You know, <laughs> what do you do if you're both a DM and a player? You, you, you have to forget that you read the book. It's almost like memorize and forget spells, fancy and rules as it would be. But I think that you're right. I think when you're coming into a game, and this is one thing that's really fun too, I think as a player is to come into a game very open-minded. That's why it's nice playing a game with somebody who is experienced. So what I found, like for instance, at cons, I've been going to, you know, I've been choosing to do at various cons. When I, when I first started going to cons, I wanted to play more old school games because I didn't have enough people around that were playing them. And that was the first thing I did. Then I continued to play things like OD&D because those are the games I liked, even once I was playing a lot. But what I found was oftentimes those sessions weren't that fulfilling for me because it was just me playing OD&D, which I could do any time. And what I've started to do in this last year or so is to do the uh, the ones that say things like learn to play or welcome to new players, you know, and, and with some game that seems interesting to me. Because now you have somebody, I guess in theory, <laughs> that is an experienced game master in this system, and they know that you're all new players, so they're going to make it easier for you to experience the game, right? A good example of this, I would say, is the game that Jason runs, the Boot Hill game that he runs. In Jason's Boot Hill game, this is at cons he runs it, I don't know if it has a title, so it's Jason's Boot Hill game. Look for it at any of these uh, cons that he um, that he's in. I think he's going to be in. Is it called Grog? I don't know. At Follow Nerds RPG Variety Cast. He'll talk about it. But anyways, he runs this Boot Hill game, and in that game, he goes through the various parts of the game. So you you have some you know interaction or whatever role play, which is part of every game, which isn't part of that rule set. But then you have the potential for a bar fight. In that bar fight, you have the potential to use weapons, which, again, is part of the game. Then you have some, you know, again, more more interaction. Then you have a shootout, potentially, with with various different rules. You know, you might have a close-range shootout or a long-range. There might be other things involved. But basically, the, the game, the session, is designed to walk you through Boot Hill. It's, we're going to do all the main things that you do in this game, and you're going to learn how to play the game by doing those things. And I think that's a really smart way to do it. You, if you were teaching somebody like D&D, let's say OD&D, one of the, the smart things to do might be to go into a dungeon because there's a lot of rules for dungeons, right? So you might say, all right, we're going to go into a dungeon. I'm going to make sure that I have, you know, that my doors are stuck like they're supposed to be, that I use that rule, that the their spikes are useful to them to be able to spike the doors open. I'm going to make sure that in some rooms there's noise on the other side so their listening makes sense. I'm going to, you know, involve some kind of slanted uh, hallways or shifting walls so that the dwarf can use their ability. You might put all these things in, you know, you're going to have some kind of combat where missile fire can be used, spells could be useful. You make sure the saving throws. This way they can understand the game, right? They're going to get a chance to use every part of the game system. And I think that's a really good way to run it uh, at cons. And I think that with an experienced GM, you know on some level inherently what parts of the rules are the part that is the game, right? Like every game has some stuff, right? Like every game has player character stocking and voice if they want. But some games have roles for that, right? You might have in a uh, Power by the Apocalypse game, 
you might have a move that's, you know, convince or something, right? And then you can use the, the Powered by the Apocalypse move to do the role, the, you know, the interaction, the social interaction, we'll call it. And, but in some games like Boot Hill, that doesn't exist. So if it's something that just exists in every game, all the players sitting down just know how to use it. But then when the expectation of the group meets the rule, then we can kind of explain that and teach them. And I think the best way to do that is to delve into a game. I think the idea of like, and this is a mistake I made, I think, early on when I look back at my resurgence into the the, the hobby, I I did my, I, call, I think I call it the year of gaming, I can't remember, what I it, where every week I played a different game. So I played, you know, and I did play sometimes more than one new game in a week. I basically played, you know, whatever. 50 games, 50 different games. But I didn't really have time to dig into those games. But when I look at the games that I sat down and dug into, Coriolis, Hyperborea, Original Dungeons and Dragons, BX, those games that I really ran for over long periods of time, those games I think I truly understand. And to tie a bow on this whole thing, those are the games where I can safely make rulings and feel like it's not because I'm trying to control the narrative, but because the rule system doesn't have a specific rule. And because of that, I'm going to use my deep knowledge of the rules to make a ruling that makes sense in the world that we're playing in. Because that's really what it's about, right? It's about having fun at the table and things making sense. I would love to know what everybody thinks about that and other things I mentioned at the beginning. Wow, didn't I say at the beginning this was going to be short? <laughs> So, uh, happy new year again, check the show notes. You're going to find a link to, well, well, unchained my, the play test. So the alpha play test, jump in there and mess with that. You're going to find a link to all the great callers. You're going to find a link to my discord server, sign up over there, join the conversation. Again, you can send me messages that way as well, or you can email me, uh, bandits keep, what's my email? Bandits keep at Gmail or Daniel at bandits keep.com also works. You can... You can do a smoke signal. You could whistle really loud. Uh, oh, or you could use the Spotify for Podcasters app. And through there, you can send me a message just like Evil Jeff did. And uh, I'll talk to you soon.